the coronavirus pandemic has disrupted your lives and damaged our economy. Its severity will continue to take a heavy toll in the weeks and months to come. The pandemic has resulted in the sudden loss of income for businesses and individuals alike, deepening poverty and increasing hunger amongst our people. Welcome to the first episode of this special COVID-19 three-part series by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies and Rethinking Economics for Africa. My name is Shaira Kala. I'll be your host as we weave together key insights into the socio-economic effects of this global crisis. In today's episode, we look at the experiences of workers and the weaknesses in our social security system, which have been exposed by the lockdown. In part two, we take a look at how our chronic levels of unemployment and precarity have been worsened in the months since the lockdown. Finally, in part three, we will engage with some macroeconomic debates and what a post-COVID South Africa might look like. The coronavirus pandemic has disrupted your lives and damaged our economy. Its severity will continue to take a heavy toll in the weeks and months to come. The pandemic has resulted in the sudden loss of income for businesses and individuals alike, deepening poverty and increasing hunger amongst precarious workers who need representation and support. On average, the CWAO received 700 phone calls a week from distressed workers throughout South Africa about retrenchments, layoffs, dismissals, and UIF issues related to the lockdown. Linford takes us back to the very beginning of the lockdown at the end of March 2020. What we did was immediately recognize that the most important task in that period, which was a couple of weeks before the lockdown was to raise awareness of firstly the workers that we work with and then the, as many of their communities as we could. Uh, and then what we did basically was we printed about 700,000 pamphlets, uh, awareness raising at the time, just basically explaining what the coronavirus was and the health measures required to prevent its spread. And we delivered that all across Ikuruleni and along with organizations like Kanya College and the Gauteng Community Health Workers Forum and Giwusa. What we, we recognized at the time quite early on, or the decision that we took, was that a response to, to a health crisis like this couldn't be left up to the state to deal with. And that decision was made based on almost 30 years of experience of sort of neoliberal attacks on healthcare and on all other state infrastructure. And it was recognized that the way out of this crisis would have to come from working class defenses. We gave workers 
bleach to make makeshift sanitizers because sanitizers were not available. Um, and the idea was that workers would then go back into their communities to to basically demonstrate to either community-based organizations or 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 people in their street basic health responses that could uh, come from from working class people themselves, which which didn't require uh, expensive solutions to 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 buying. Uh, expensive sanitizers and stuff. So that was the general idea at the beginning of the crisis um, was to alert people to, 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 the, to a health response that came from below. It gives you an indication as to what would be possible if the state saw communities as agents in tackling this virus and not as people to control. Because he has a network of thousands of workers who know each other well and could be utilized to, to fight against this virus. They know their communities. They've cleaned their communities for years. But they, they're sitting there and not being used, basically. The decision was taken to completely lock down the movement of people, apart from buying supplies and those who were considered to be producing government-deemed essential goods and services. Only 39% of the workforce was allowed to work at the highest level of the lockdown. So how will the rest of these workers, now out of work, be able to support their households? Even before COVID-19, South Africa's social security and employment security systems provided the only forms of predictable income for many households. We're going to run through some numbers, so stay with me, because the devil is in the detail. The government offers seven long-term grants which benefit 18 million people. The grants to the elderly and those living with disabilities are 1,900 rand per month. There is also a child support grant of 450 rand per month per child. The UIF, or Unemployment Insurance Fund, covers unemployed workers or workers who are unable to work due to illness or maternity leave. It requires a 1% of monthly income contribution by both the employer and the employee. These payouts are capped between the minimum wage of 3,500 rand and a maximum of about 15,000 rand. Really, what you receive depends on how high your salary was when you were employed. The most concerning thing about the UIF is just how many employees are not registered with the fund, as the responsibility lies with their employer to register them. At the end of March, the government created a Temporary Employment Relief Fund, or TERS, to support workers and employers whose businesses have closed their operations as a result of the pandemic. TERS initially worked in the similar way to the UIF. Literally on the afternoon of the lockdown, the Thursday afternoon, we got a number of workers coming into the office, um, basically telling us that the employer had sent them to the Department of Labor offices to fill in forms, UIF forms. And then when they returned back to their factories, they, the employer had shut the factories and wasn't anywhere to be, to be found. And I think that was just a, a small indication of what was to come under the lockdown. And that was because of the extremely slow and strange implementation of the, the, UIF COVID 
temporary employee employer relief scheme, which placed the responsibility on upon employers to apply for the scheme and at first didn't oblige them to, didn't force them to. Um, and it took almost a month for the for the government to amend those regulations properly. What we're seeing at Cal is that workers just have no way of knowing if their employer has applied. They can't get in hold get hold of their employer. So there's no enforcement mechanism to ensure that employers apply, even though they've changed their amendments to oblige employers to apply. Employers that have received money, according to the Department of Labor database, are in some cases just not paying it out to workers. Um, employers that have been paying workers, uh, sometimes have been paying workers from the TERS grant below the stipulated minimum, which is supposed to be 3,500. At one company, some workers can be getting paid their TERS grants while others aren't. And in many of these cases, it's often permanent workers who are getting paid out their TERS grants and the casual or labor broker workers who just aren't because the employers aren't applying for them. Firstly, politically, we disagreed with the use, use of workers' money to bail out the state and, and capital for in their responsibility to pay workers during a lockdown. But secondly, the implementation of this TERS grant has been nothing short of a disaster. Basically, the, the employer responses to the lockdown took two forms. The first was that um, companies that remained open as essential services uh, basically either, either continued to produce non-essential goods at the time, which, uh, which uh, workers were frustrated with because they'd been told that there's a deadly virus and now they've been working to continue to produce sort of non-essentials. The second element of employer responses under the lockdown was, was I think what we have just discussed already was that workplaces were, that were locked uh, and workers that were laid off during the lockdown. Um, basically, most employers forced workers to tap into their annual leave. This was before the TERS amendments were made. And what this obviously does for employers is it means that it prevents workers from, from using their annual leaves, leave later in the year. But I think that the main thing for workers that were locked out during those first weeks of the lockdown is that workers are just being told all over the show, no work, no pay. It's just a sort of like blatant disregard for their, for their livelihoods. Um, uh, I don't think we were surprised by it. Uh, in South Africa, we used to... Uh, capitalist class that is <laughs> extremely ruthless. Um, but in comparison to other countries, it's interesting to note that employers that impose this no work, no pay principle uh, in South Africa didn't get any backlash. So the, the state has now amended the regulations to oblige employers to apply for the TERS grants on behalf of the employees. But this still doesn't cover workers who, whose employers haven't uh, been making their UIF contributions. So there's a huge number of workers who, who, who are just going to fall through the cracks. For years, workers have come to us and said, look, my employer has deducted my UIF contribution. They show us their, their, their payslip, but they've just gone to the Department of Labor census uh, and they're not on the, the system, which means their, 
it's 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 a common scenario where employers are are, are deducting the UIF but pocketing it themselves. So we have a situation where those workers um, are just completely left out in the dark. Their employers aren't going to go now and sort out their debts with the department to ensure that their their workers get the TERS. Uh, they clearly, if if they the type of people who will who will steal the one percent uh, UIF contribution, they're not going to be the type of people who will go and then. Uh, remedy that for the workers. It was at this point near the end of March that the lockdown was announced by the government. A sense of panic set in as it became clear that the government's interventions excluded informal workers who make up about a third of the labor force. Part of the discourse in this pandemic has centered the importance of evidence-based policymaking. Both health and economics researchers have played a role by informing government strategies to curb the virus's impact. One of these researchers is Ehsan Basir, who is part of a group of economists led by Dr. Kate Phillip that aimed to inform policy that would reach informal workers and give them some relief. The work with Kate Phillips started with um, with a, a group of Salju economists. Our work was aimed at providing some technical assistance to Kate Phillip, who was spearheading a proposal to to lead the presidency um, and uh, towards the rest of the of, of the uh, the government to get some social relief. The big issue was that, you know, the lockdown happened uh, on the 26th of March um, and and it really became apparent that there wasn't much of a plan at that point, at the early point, towards um, giving social relief. And as you can imagine, it would have been a disaster not to have social relief. The informal worker uh, sector of the, of the employed population is so massive, um, about a third of all employed workers. If you count in what really are the major um, components, which is, if you think about unregistered informal businesses, which is a massive sector, so it's not like this was a realization out of a vacuum. And so our, our, our work was not, to was, was not so much to highlight the problem as much as to put concrete numbers to the problem. And throughout the, the review, uh, throughout the advocacy effort, uh, along with uh, many people from civil society, from this policy group, from even from people within government, it really was not clear that the government was going to listen at all. If you just assume a 75% decrease uh, in informal worker income, uh, which is really a conservative estimate because most informal workers can't operate at all, so they probably won't be able to get any income at all, uh, then um, poverty really shoots up dramatically for the for for people in informal worker households, and there was a lot of policy back and forth of different departments and different players trying to convince each other. In my view, it, it already came extremely late. Uh, we missed the first of April payout. It meant that people would have uh, to withstand lockdown for a month through April. Uh, and we saw reports of that, how 
there was just rampant hunger how there was uh, uh, you know uh, to the extent that people were forced to to in some cases to 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 go on uh, to take food as was needed and so uh, it came late uh, when the announcement did come but it was ex- extremely necessary and and it was at least for us a bit of a relief that it, it did come eventually and, and, and for a lot of people throughout South Africa. A major finding to come out of this work was that the easiest way to reach informal workers was through increasing the child support grant because of the relatively high correlation between households with workers in the informal sector and households with children receiving the grants. Two things which was highlighted during, during the policy work. One thing was that there was a much greater willingness to say, uh, have the lockdown, which doesn't take money out of the treasury's budget, but much less willingness to say, um, take money out of the budget for grants. So that was the one really disillusioning part. And the second disillusioning part was that there was specifically, it seemed to be a, some, a kind of bias against doing, against increasing grants. And I think this really speaks quite strongly to uh, the history of the of the government and really uh, many of the of the uh, the ANC's decisions to be reluctant in increasing grants, which has really cost South Africans in terms of hardship and day to day hunger an enormous amount. There's this seems to be some kind of the the policy of you uh, only only the deserving get get get, uh, get get help through grants, and that means you have to be a child, or you have to be a pensioner, or you have to be um, you have to be declared having a disability, and otherwise you don't get assisted. And so some of the comments that were coming through from government was, well, if we increase the grants, is it really deserving? And that kind of mentality is is shocking and disillusioning at a time uh, at which it, uh, you have such such a massive crisis in South Africa. And also you see correct policy responses being made across the rest of the world. Now, to be clear, uh, there were many in government who were very much on board with the, with the increase in grants. And of course, ultimately, the package that was announced did include large increases to grants. But what I'm highlighting here is just that initial amount of resistance and the period it took in order to announce the, the social grants uh, was really far worse than than what should be in a country like ours. And like clockwork, as soon as the policy was announced, the sigh of relief was short-lived. Our biggest challenge was now the difference between life and death. Implementation. I'm especially worried about the implementation of this COVID grant. Uh, Hopefully by the time that people listen to this podcast, it will have gone well. Now the problem is that around 15 million people uh, do not have a formal sector job and are not receiving grants and uh, also are between the, the ages of 18 and 60. And the challenge is then, how do you reduce that 15 from treasury side? How do you reduce that 15 million to what was projected in terms of the numbers uh, around uh, 8 million? Um, and in that process, there have been a number of close to what seems to be arbitrary requirements put in place. 
So that's on a criteria level, but also in terms of implementation, people don't have data. So how are they going to um, apply in terms of email and WhatsApp? Uh, the SASA offices are to some degree either closed or overloaded. So how do people uh, go to the SASA offices? For those who need a bank account, many are unbanked. Uh, what are they, what are they going to do? They, it, it costs money to, uh, and, and time and health risk lines to, um, to actually stand the, stand the line and open a bank account. By mid-April, President Saul Ramaphosa announced socioeconomic relief measures, one being a temporary top-up of grants and the new COVID grant. But after not receiving an income for two months, workers were desperate, and the Casual Workers Advice Office made an urgent court application to amend the TERS directives. They were also supported by the Izwe Domestic Worker Alliance and the Women on Farms Project. They won this court battle on the 28th of May, a massive relief for workers in the informal sector. The Department of Labor decided on a settlement and amended the TERS directives to cover workers in precarious employment as well as domestic and farm workers, irrespective of whether or not the employer had complied with the laws regulating the UIF. One of the other socioeconomic relief measures announced by President Ramaphosa was a top-up for the child support grant going to the caregivers of children living in poverty. The other problem with switching from the child support grant to the caregiver grant is that it means it doesn't protect the children as much. And this is really a crucial point because out of that extra 2 million people that are left in extreme hunger as a result of switching from the child care grant to, to the caregiver grant, 1.1 million of those 2 million are children. And really, it's, it's kind of like, how could you ever justify putting children into extreme poverty? There's no justification to put anyone in extreme poverty, but we should have a speci special care for children. And this comes on the back of the fact that the National School, school Feeding Scheme has also to a large degree um, not been implemented during the lockdown, meaning that school children are also losing out on meals. So on the one hand, losing out on income to the extent that 1.1 million more children can't have meet the food budget for a month. This is Kirsten Pearson from the Budget Justice Coalition, a network of NGOs and civil society organizations that encourage participation and understanding of South Africa's public budget and planning process. So we're quite keenly uh, waiting to see what's going to come through in terms of the cuts. Um, we are happy about some of the allocations. A lot of our members were quite um, vocal in advocating for increases to the um, child support grant and also in advocating for a basic income grant. So we were quite um, pleased when we saw that the um, special COVID grant was coming through and also the increase to the child support grant. But as always, when there's a budget type of announcement, you always have to let it sink in and see what the fine print is because just after we were happy to um, hear that the um, child support grant would be increased by 500 rand from uh, June onwards, then we heard that no, it was per caregiver and not per child. So this month in May, 
uh, there's an increase of 300 rand per child, but then going forward from June, it's 500 rand per caregiver. And it's usually meant to follow the child. So if a mum has three children, um, then you know she's going to receive less um, money than a mom who's got one ch child to um, provide for with that grant. So uh, that was that was something that we were quite sort of disappointed with because it went against actually what the president had said. The 500 rand caregiver grant is too small for families with more than one child, and it is also below the 1,200 rand food poverty line, itself a contested measure the food poverty line, that doesn't even account for other kinds of basic needs that a person may need to pay for. So, you know, uh, electricity or water. And one of the other aspects that has been pretty uh, devastating for people who are experiencing it to experience is the lack of water um, that people have had to experience during lockdown. I mean, that's a long-standing pre-existing problem um, and we have our drought issues in South Africa. Uh, and then also people's, you know, electricity connections that are cut off because um, they can't pay their electricity or places that don't even have electricity. And for me, in the, in the longer term, one has to speak about whether grants are just a kind of plaster, a placatory measure, what happens after the pandemic and the sort of do we go back to normal? What was normal? Uh, for me, normal is pretty toxic. We were pushing for a good stimulus package. So some of our members had done research and uh, were uh, advocating for a good stimulus package. It comes in at around 10% of GDP. So um, a 500 billion um, fiscal response package. And the some of that uh, is going to be funded through reprioritizing existing budgets. So 130 billion uh, of the existing budget will be reprioritized. And I think that's where it relates to the concerns that we were previously raising about austerity budgeting. Before COVID-19 landed on our shores, South Africa's economy was in a technical recession. So you are probably asking the question, in the quagmire we now find ourselves in, how will we afford a stimulus package? A number of ideas have emerged. That include reappropriating the existing national budget, using UIF savings, selling special government bonds to the Central Reserve Bank, international loans, and a wealth tax. Let's think about the budget of South Africa. We also have this massive decrease in tax revenue that's going to happen this year. If you think about the lockdown, you think about businesses closing down. That means less tax coming from companies, uh, less, less tax coming from people, because lots of people are going to be laid off or put on UIF tiers, uh, and then you don't, pay, you don't pay tax. And SARS predicts 30% decline in tax revenue. That's a massive decline. We're talking on the order of around 600 billion. Land. So there's a big challenge. How do we fund this? With the first uh, point of contribution was through direct taxations. There's really an opportunity to be taxing high income earners more because the lockdown actually enforces that people have to consume or buy 
fewer, especially luxury goods. And that means, you know, let's take some high-earning family who would have gone on a overseas holiday, would have been eating out in restaurants very often, would have been um, traveling much more, would have been maybe uh, buying much more. Because a lot of high earners look at the finance industry, look at many other industries. You can still work from home um, and you're paid just as much. Uh, those are just accumulated savings. Um, and so it's an opportunity to tax this group higher without actually decreasing the uh, alternative spending that they would have had. We put some numbers to it looking at past expenditure patterns, something like uh, over um, 100 billion rand is used by the top 2% of adults uh, would actually be gained through accumulated savings because it's restricted spending that can no longer happen, as I said, on holidays and hotels and restaurants and so on, then that really is used much less than if it actually is taxed, taken through the government, and the government then uses it and puts it into the economy, specifically into something like the healthcare sector. In the one case, you have the money exiting the economy, it's leaked from the economy completely through, through savings. And of course, there are different ways in which those savings could, could be used, but in all likelihood, it's, it's, it's much more of a leak. And on the other hand, if it's taxed and used from the government, especially through, for example, healthcare, uh, then it becomes, it not only stays in the economy, but it also becomes an expansion mechanism. Uh, and I really want to emphasize that like, this healthcare sector in the new COVID economy is quite, it, the, the opportunities are big. PPE equipment, there's really a, a lot of potential for, for care workers to be employed. We've seen some increase in that, uh, but really uh, there's an opportunity for many more care workers to be, to be employed, to be doing the, the care work that needs to happen. For all, for example, the, the elderly who now can't go to get their own grocery shopping, for example, they need to be assisted. Just as an example, it's an economic opportunity. We will come back to the developing macroeconomic debates in part three. There's a lot happening and it is difficult to keep track. This episode, we looked at the early stages of the pandemic. For now, this is the end of part one of this special COVID-19 three-part series by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies and Rethinking Economics for Africa. In part two, we will look at how our chronic levels of unemployment and precarity have been worsened in the months since the lockdown. Kusini is a Kiswahili term meaning South. Kusini is the media initiative of SCIS, the Southern Center for Inequality Studies, a research and policy center based at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. The SCIS is an interdisciplinary inequality research unit working with partner institutions in South Africa and across the world with a focus on the global south. Thank you for listening to Kusini, a media initiative of SEIS. For more about us and our work, please follow us on Twitter at vits underscore SEIS and our website is www.vits.ac.za forward slash SCIS. This episode is available on IONO FM and other podcast channels. <laughs>